You're listening to Season 7 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world, from 1979 to today. This is episode 7.6, Unfulfilled Potential, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and even after all this time, I still think that the greatest tragedy of F91 is that they called Theodore Fairchild's bakery Tess's Bread when they could have called it Ted's Breads. And I'm Nina, new to F91 and happy to be in a research groove again. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 710 patrons and subscribers. We did it! We made it past 700! Thank you all, and special thanks to our newest supporters. Katrien, John, Susan S., Rumorbard, Zach P., Shaboy XXL, or possibly Chaboy? I don't know. Benjamin S., Tilty House, Scott D., Robert M., Total Snarf, Matthew W, Alex L, Ben M, Eric H, Twee Mai, That Guy, Magna Pina Squid, also possibly Magna Pina Squid, unclear, Helena A, Suit Cat, Jalicock, Robot Mascot, Rythul, Sunny, Omega Killtastic, Rippo, Flubby, the Space Cop, Sam P, Gunner G, Sulemio Brainrot, Wasabi Michi, Nightshade, Graybane, Nathan, Cincy Westsider, Hot Kai Summer, Charles B, Evelyn RM, Mugenoken, and Martin McL. You keep us Genki. And special shout out to Haro Kid, who has been doing the art for the pins that enticed all of you to uh, sign up this month. Also, special thanks to Tierhan for supporting us on Kofi. I am equal parts amused and mystified by your message, quote, let Tom have his gym dominance kit bash. Uh, I don't know what that means, but I don't think I'm stopping him. I know what it means. I was the one stopping me. A quick update on the pin promotion and the giveaway contest. Both have been raging successes. During the promotion period, we added 71 new patrons. That's a more than 10% increase in just two weeks. Pins will probably not ship until January. It takes some time to collate the mailing list, pack them, handle postage, but I will post regular updates. In the meantime, please keep an eye out for emails or Patreon messages from us. If we don't have your address, I will be reaching out. We also received more than 80 contest entries. We still need to review them and make sure they meet the contest criteria, plus organize how patrons are going to vote, uh, but we are so impressed with your enthusiasm and excitement, and I can't wait to read these entries. The episode this week is going to be a bit different. Since we stuffed 7.5 so full of discussion that there was no room for research, this week we're going to play catch-up with an all-research episode. 
I've got the first of two pieces on the ancient civilization that inspired Cosmo Babylonia. No points for guessing which one. And then Nina will close us out with a profile of featured songstress Moriguchi Hiroko, who sang the movie's ending track, among other things. Next week will be another all-research episode, and then for 7.8, if all goes according to plan, we'll be joined by animation consultant Mateo, aka Animatudes, to talk about how Formula 91 looks and moves. Before we start, I have an update on a point that flummoxed us when we were talking about Cecily's mother, Nadia. Nina wondered why it was that Nadia decided to leave Doral Rona behind when she absconded with Cecily. It turns out there's a pretty good explanation for that, one that actually sheds a lot of light on the interpersonal dynamics within the Rona family. It's just that it's not anywhere to be found in the movie itself. Mark Simmons was good enough to clarify that Doral is Iron Mask's son by another woman, possibly a former partner, possibly a mistress on the side. This, I think, helps to explain Doral's relative marginalization within the family, as well as Meitzer's clear preference for Cecily. It also explains why, when Doral first goes to collect Cecily at the beginning of the movie, he calls Nadia your mother, not our mother, or simply mother. I had always thought that was just a quirk of his speech or a sign of his resentment for having been abandoned, but no, it was a clue all along. So thank you, Mark, for solving the mystery. I'd also like to introduce a few more members of the movie's sprawling cast. I have to start on a sad note, though, because Zabine Sharu's voice actor, Yanada Kiyoyuki, who had also played a handful of small roles in SD Gundam, passed away this month, reportedly while he was undergoing treatment for cancer. He was only 57. His crossbone vanguard subordinate, Anna-Marie Bourget, was played by Kojuro Chie, this is her only Gundam role, and none of her other anime roles really stood out to me, but she is the Japanese voice of Lisa Simpson. Her counterpart on the Federation side, Birgit Pirio, was voiced by Shioya Yoku. He was a child actor and debuted in voice acting when he was only 13 years old, landing the lead role on Umi no Triton, a name that you may recognize because he was also Tomino Yoshiyuki's debut work as chief director. That same year, Shioya landed a major role on Science Ninja Team Gachaman, a name you may recognize as Okawara Kunio's debut project as mecha designer. He then reunited with both for some bit part roles on First Gundam before being cast to play the male lead on Tomino's Space Runaway Ideon. A few years after finishing up on F91, he and Yanado Kiyoyuki would reunite to co-star in landmark basketball anime Slam Dunk. Most interesting to us right now, though, Shioya was also the voice of Xeon-sympathizing Anaheim Electronics technician Orville in 0083's Stardust Memory. A handful of the other actors for small roles in F91 also crossed over with Stardust Memory, which kind of makes you wonder if maybe they were cast in the movie just because they were kind of already hanging around the studio. Watabe Takeshi, who plays the confusingly named Colonel Cosmo, is another of those crossover actors. But the character he plays in 0083, also a colonel, remains a spoiler for our purposes. After getting started doing radio dramas in high school and then dropping out of college, Watabe got into anime way back in 1968. He continued acting right up until his death in 2010, also during treatment for cancer. Watabe also had a major role on Umino Triton as the villain Poseidon, playing opposite Shioya. There's a, 
a certain familiarity, a sense of camaraderie or chumminess between Cosmo and Birgit when the latter is first introduced, and it's nice to know that the voice actors themselves were old colleagues, that the elder had been there for the younger's debut and had seen his career blossom over the years. Finally, for today at least, acting captain of the space arc Leah Lee Elderberry was voiced by Yoko Mari, formerly of SPT Lazner and Zabungle, and soon to appear in Tekaman Blade. And now Tom's research on the civilization that inspired Cosmo Babylonia. Cosmo Babylonia. Gundam is rarely so explicit in its references. But here in the film itself, the characters get up on the stage and they say in no uncertain terms, we are calling our new society Babylonia, but in space. Subtle, it is not. But this practice of overt historical reference is appropriate for the self-styled cosmo-aristocrats. Theirs is a consciously backward-looking society. Their whole ethos is about a return to an old and discarded mode of social organization. For all that Zeon's aesthetics harkened back to the age of imperialism, and for all that First Gundam's grand narrative echoed the First and Second World Wars, Giren Zabi himself was forward-looking. He saw his nation as something new, emerging from the unique circumstances of their new realm in space. He had so little regard for humanity's political past that he never bothered to look to it for inspiration, as is famously revealed by his almost total ignorance of Adolf Hitler. The same forward-looking rationale animated the various movements that followed. The Ayug and Neo-Zeon may have had different political goals, but they shared the underlying belief that the people living in space were fundamentally different from their earthbound cousins. They believed that they had closed the book on history, and were writing its sequel among the stars. I'm not going to deny that these groups mostly ended up advocating for social structures that closely resemble those already being practiced on Earth. Ayug basically wants liberal representative democracy. Giran's model looks like a totalitarian military dictatorship, and Haman wanted to vest absolute power in a monarchy, just as long as it was one that had a monarch who was absolutely within her power. But we can blame that on the limited imaginations of the characters. They still wanted something novel. The desperate desire for the new to break free from the surly gravity of the old is baked right into the original Gundam storyline, going back to new types and Zeonzoom Daikun. It is the great question posed to the viewer. What are we going to be? Perhaps that is why Encounters in Space, the third Gundam compilation movie, ends with that cryptic line, and now in anticipation of your insight into the future. But basically none of what I just said is true for the exponents of Cosmo Babylonia. As far as Mitzorona is concerned, humanity pretty much figured out the correct version of society some 3,000 years ago, and he just wants to get back to the good old days, except in space. Cosmo Babylonia. But why Babylonia? Why did Meitzer choose Babylonia instead of any of the countless other aristocratic societies in human history? What was it that he admired about that society? And why did the creators, Tomino in particular, decide to make Meitzer fixate on Babylonia? 
As always, we need to exercise caution with this kind of analysis. As we draw parallels, identify inspirations, or expose contradictions between the real history and the way it's being applied in the movie, we should always remember that the people actually creating the story may have thought about those things differently, if they knew or cared about them at all. There's an anecdote from the creation of F-91 that I think is really instructive on this specific point. Tomino asked the principal mecha designer, Okawara, to base the Crossbone Vanguard suits on Babylonian art, and he provided references in the form of art books and photo collections from various museums. But then when the first drafts came back, Tomino said, you know, since this is Babylon, I'd really like for these mobile suits to resemble medieval armor. When someone on the planning staff pointed out that Babylonia was not even remotely medieval and Babylonian soldiers absolutely did not wear armor that looked like that of medieval knights, Tomino just waved it away. Those kinds of minor details don't matter, he explained. So let's not get too hung up on what the team did or did not intend to put in the movie. Let's focus on what we can get out of it through the lens of Earth Babylonia. Today I'm going to talk about the history of that name and that region, and then next week we'll turn to Babylonian society, culture, religion, and myth. The term, Babylonia, refers to an ancient civilization and the geographic region it dominated, which more or less corresponds to the southern part of modern-day Iraq, along a strip of fertile land between the Tigris River in the northeast and the Euphrates in the southwest. We take that name, Babylonia, from the city Babylon, which lay near the middle of the region and had a massive political, cultural, and religious influence on the civilization named for it. But the practice of calling the region Babylonia was externally imposed, first by their neighbors and rivals in the Assyrian Empire, later by the Greeks. Thanks to a quirk of historical coincidence, Babylon briefly extended its power over the ancient kingdom of Israel, and thus it features prominently in the Bible, which preserved some memory of the city and the name long after the place itself ceased to be relevant. Gundam F91 is hardly the only anime to reference Babylon or Babylonia. It's not even the only mecha anime to reference Babylon. In fact, it isn't even the only mecha anime animated by Studio Sunrise, published by Bandai Visual, and released in the spring of 1991 to reference Babylon, as the fictional land reclamation campaign known as Project Babylon looms large in the Mobile Police Pat Labor series, which had OVAs come out the month before and the month after F91. Uh, by the way, Pat Labor's Project Babylon, which first appeared in 1988, should not be confused with the real Project Babylon, an Iraqi military project to create a supergun that could fire artillery rounds into orbit, which also, and I assume coincidentally, began in 1988. Before that, there was the 1985 movie Rupan Sansei Babiron no Ogon Densetsu, or Lupin III, Legend of the Gold of Babylon, in which the eponymous thief discovers that the biblical Tower of Babel was somehow transported to Madison Square in New York City. Then, in 1990, the manga collective Clamp started publishing their occult mystery series Tokyo Babylon. More tangentially, in the US, at the same time, the name Babylon kept cropping up in X-rated adult films, like 1985's American Babylon, or the Babylon Pink series, which ran from 79 to 88. In all of these cases, Babylon is being invoked for its biblical reputation as a den of vice and decadence, or as emblematic of hubris, as expressed in the well-known story of the Tower of Babel, 
in which mankind works together to construct an impressive tower and is then punished for it by God. In Pat Labor's case, for instance, Project Babylon is a civil engineering program on such a massive scale that giant robots have to be invented just to build it, and much of the drama and conflict throughout the franchise stems from the unintended fallout of that project. So F91 stands out from those other examples because the reference being made here is distinctly to the historical rather than to the biblical Babylon. But historical Babylon has thousands of years of history. Before we can begin to ask what it means to reference Babylon, we need to actually understand its history. From its earliest period, the people of Babylonia divided the region into two sections, the older civilization of Sumer in the southeast and the younger Akkad in the northwest. The Sumerians were among the first peoples to develop agriculture, domesticate animals, form cities, and invent systems of writing, probably in that order. Urban civilization began in Sumer around 6,000 years ago, when archaeological evidence shows that the number and population of the region's cities began growing rapidly. Each of these Sumerian cities had its own patron deity, who was said to reside within the city. The city and its dominions were the property of the god, its people were the god's subjects, and the king was merely the god's earthly steward and administrator. The gods of the various cities together formed a fluid pantheon, in which a god's prominence waxed and waned in concert with the political fortunes of its host city. For example, a myth records that Inanna, goddess of the city Uruk, stole the secret arts of civilization from Enki, god of Eridu, a story that mirrors and probably commemorates the moment when Uruk, the city, overtook the older Eridu to become the most important urban center in the region. Uruk, by the way, was the capital city of the legendary hero king Gilgamesh, who, if he really existed, may have ruled Uruk during its first dynastic period, roughly 5,000 years ago. By that point, other cities had emerged to challenge Uruk's dominance, just as Uruk had once challenged Eridu. And the region was divided into numerous feuding city-states. So that's Sumer. Akkad, or Agad, enters the story around 1,500 years after the rise of Sumer, some 4,300 years before the present day. The Akkadians were a Semitic people who settled in and around the northern Babylonian city Akkad, though again, it's not Babylonia yet. The name Akkad is not itself an Akkadian word, suggesting that the city existed before the Akkadians settled there. The city itself has not yet been rediscovered, and we know little about its early history or that of the Akkadians but they surged to prominence around 2300 BC, when one of their kings, Sharukin, defeated the Sumerian dynast Lugal Zagesi, unifying Sumer and Akkad under his rule. Sharukin is remembered as Sargon of Akkad, or Sargon the Conqueror for this feat. His descendants would face numerous revolts by the formerly independent cities until his Sargonic dynasty collapsed entirely in 2154 but the Akkadian conquest established a model for a polyglot Mesopotamian empire that many ambitious kings would consciously imitate in the millennia to come. Over time, the Akkadian language displaced Sumerian in regular use, even as Sumerian persisted in what we might call high culture, politics, diplomacy, astrology, science, literature, and above all, religion, until it died out completely around the first century CE. 
Babylon itself enters the historical record before the Akkadian conquests as a small and unimportant settlement which was called something like Babar or Babir. It lay in the northern, which is to say Akkadian, part of Babylonia, but it was somewhat to the south of where we believe the city Akkad itself must have been located. Akkad's decline into obscurity after about a century and a half of preeminence under the Sargonic dynasty seems to have created a regional power vacuum, which allowed Babylon to grow, first into a regional power center around 2100 BC, and then to dominate all of Babylonia from around 1800 BC, beginning a period that we call the First or Old Babylonian Empire. The Old Babylonian Empire was established by that famous king Hammurabi, and although some 250 years had passed since the disintegration of Sargon's empire, the borders of Hammurabi's Old Babylonian Empire were almost identical to those of its predecessor. Hammurabi himself was not Akkadian, but rather he was an Amorite, another Semitic people that likely originated somewhere west of the Euphrates, possibly in the biblical Canaan. But Hammurabi's Amorite ancestors migrated into the Akkadian region around 2000 BC. The new arrivals seized established city-states, including the then-obscure Babylon. Around two centuries later, Hammurabi inherited a small and relatively weak city in the midst of a divided region, but through battlefield victory and clever diplomatic maneuvering, he was able to annex or destroy each of the other regional powers, and established Babylonian dominance over all of Sumer and Akkad. Today, that old Babylonian empire is best remembered for Hammurabi himself, and he is best remembered for the law code which he promulgated. Composed sometime around 1750 BC, near the end of his reign, it was rediscovered as an inscription on a slab of basalt, found in pieces during the winter of 1901-1902 at an excavation in the ancient city of Susa. Scholars who study Babylonia still have many unresolved questions about the code itself, but among the lay population, it has gained a reputation as a kind of totem representing the abstract concept of governance. The United Nations keeps a replica of the code in its headquarters, and Hammurabi himself is depicted in artwork installed in the United States Capitol and the Supreme Court. Hammurabi's successors would lose most of the empire almost immediately after his death, and only managed to hold on to Babylon itself and a small rump state which it could dominate for about 200 years, roughly the same duration as Sargon's Akkadian dynasty. But unlike Akkad, Babylon would remain one of the epicenters of culture, power, and above all, religion, for a thousand years to come. The final end of Hammurabi's dynasty and of Amorite rule in Babylon came in the 1500s BC, when the Hittites, a powerful expansionist empire with their base in modern-day Turkey, sacked the city and carried off the statues of its local god, Marduk. The Hittites, however, only wanted to destroy Babylon, and so they pulled their armies back after it fell. In the chaos that followed, a different newly arrived tribal group, the Kassites, moved in and consolidated their control over Babylon and the other northern Babylonian cities formerly ruled by the Amorites. This same pattern then repeated itself. The Kassite dynasty managed to rule over Babylonia for about three centuries, and they even managed to retrieve the statue of Marduk that had been seized by the Hittites. 
but a combination of dynastic feuding, persistent pressure from the hostile Assyrians to the north, tensions with the Elamites moving into the region, and uprisings by local urban elites weakened Kassite rule until, in the 1150s BC, an Elamite army sacked Babylon and carried off the statue of Marduk once again. Unlike the Hittites, who had ended Hammurabi's dynasty, the Elamites tried to hang around and rule the conquered cities of Babylonia. But after a generation under Elamite rule, a native Babylonian king, Nabu-Kuduri-Usser, ejected them and, once again, retrieved the statue of Marduk. This kicked off a period of expansion and cultural renaissance for Babylonia, and it was during this era that the Babylonian creation epic Enuma Elish was written. But by now we've seen this play out a couple of times, so say this next part with me. Nabu-Kuduri-Usser's successors were unable to hold on to the kingdom he had built, and after a little over a century, the combination of pressure from an aggressive neighbor, the Assyrians once again, the disruptions caused by the rise of a powerful new ethnic group migrating into Babylonia, the Aramaeans in the north and the Chaldeans in the south, as well as internal dynastic tensions and conflict with local urban elites, led to the demise of the ruling house and the decline of central authority. What followed was three centuries of political turmoil, with power divided both between and within three major blocs. The local elites who controlled the urban city-states, the Kassite, Aramean, and Chaldean tribes that occupied the countryside, and the neighboring Assyrian Empire. Eventually, the Assyrians, themselves going through an imperial resurgence, were able to squash but not actually destroy the other two contenders. Around 730 BC, the Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser III extended his suzerainty over Babylonia after crushing a Chaldean potentate whose name I won't bother you with. Although himself a usurper, Tiglath-Pileser proved to be a powerful, expansionist, and reform-minded ruler. At home, he revived the declining Assyrian state and turned it into what is arguably the first true empire in world history. Besides conquering Babylonia, his armies, using the most advanced technology and organizational principles of the era, pushed the borders of the Assyrian Empire all the way to Egypt, conquering Syria and Israel along the way. But though conquered, Babylon was not reduced to a mere provincial capital. The cultural gravity of the city and of Babylonian civilization had way too much sway over the Assyrians. When Tiglath-Pileser seized Babylon, he declared himself its king, creating a personal union of Assyria and Babylon similar to that between, say, England and Scotland. But wouldn't you know it, his successors would not be equal to the task of holding this big empire together, and for the next century, Assyrian rulers trying to control Babylonia would contend with all of our old friends, urban elites in the city-states, Chaldean and Aramean tribes in the countryside, and the Elamites back again to pressure the southeastern border. The Assyrians remained supremely powerful on the battlefield, but this was one of those whack-a-mole conflicts, where the Assyrians would win every battle, but the revolts never stopped. Then, around 610 BC, Assyria encountered one of those scenarios that so frequently spells doom for an empire. A dominant ruler died, and his sons fell to feuding over which of them would get the crown. Then, in their moment of weakness, an outside pretender made his own bid for power, and as that three-way power struggle distracted everyone, 
Down in Babylon, a coalition of anti-Assyrian rebels took their opportunity to make a break for independence under a new leader named Nabopolassar. Fatally weakened, Assyria no longer had the strength to put down this Babylonian upstart. So after establishing himself as king of Babylon, Nabopolassar began expanding his own influence north, peeling off Assyrian strongholds and opening the way into the Assyrian heartland. In 615 BC, his armies laid siege to Assur itself, the city that gave Assyria its name. The faltering empire gathered what strength it had left and managed to push the Babylonians back. But the following year, while their armies were busy keeping Nabopolassar in check, his new allies, the Medes, living in what is today Iran, broke through Assyrian defenses and sacked Assur. Two years later, the Babylonians and Medes linked up, and their combined forces captured and sacked the once impregnable Assyrian capital, Nineveh. The Assyrian king fled south. He appealed to the Egyptians, and although they were ancient rivals with the Assyrians, the Egyptian empire feared this new Babylonian upstart. They dispatched an army to deal with Nabopolassar and restore the Assyrian king to his throne, but they were crushed by Nabopolassar's son. With no central authority to speak of, what was left of the Assyrian Empire fell gradually into the hands of the Babylonians. We call this new empire the Second, or Neo-Babylonian Empire, or sometimes the Chaldean Empire. You can think of the Neo-Babylonian Empire as a successor state to the Assyrian Empire, or perhaps more accurately, we could call it the same empire, but with a new capital and new management. It was during the Neo-Babylonian Empire that the city of Babylon itself reached the apex of its power and grandeur. Nabopolassar and his successors were made wealthy by their conquests, and they spent lavishly on building projects throughout Babylonia. This was a key part of how a Babylonian ruler legitimized himself. He would rebuild temples, improve irrigation, and devote huge resources to massive public works projects in cities throughout his empire. Among the projects built by Nabopolassar and his successors was the famous and famously gorgeous Ishtar Gate and the processional way that led to it, both built by Nabopolassar's son, Nabukuduri-Usur II, who is better known by the Hebrew version of his name, Nebuchadnezzar. It is this Nebuchadnezzar who conquered the biblical kingdom of Judah, sacked Jerusalem once, and then when the city rebelled against his rule, raised it to the ground and deported the Judean people back to Babylonia in what is remembered as the Babylonian exile. He is also traditionally credited with building the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, although admittedly no evidence that they actually existed has yet been discovered. He is also credited with building the Etemenanki, a grand ziggurat to honor Marduk, widely thought to have been the inspiration for the Tower of Babel story. So, if we were going to rate Babylonian rulers based purely on which things from their reigns are remembered today, then I figure Sargon gets one point for his conquests, Hammurabi gets one point for his law code, whichever king happened to be on the throne for the creation of the Enuma Elish gets one for that, and then Nebuchadnezzar cleans up with at least three for major building projects and two for what we would now call crimes against humanity. But you know the drill by now, vast empire, powerful ruler, problematic succession, internal division, foreign pressure. 
After more than 40 years as king, Nebuchadnezzar died, leaving the throne to his son, who managed to reign for two years before he was betrayed and killed by his own brother-in-law. The usurper managed to hold the throne for a whopping four years before he died, possibly of natural causes. Kingship descended to his son, who got to enjoy his new role for a couple of weeks before a coup within the palace handed the crown to an elderly official, Nabu Naid. Nabu Naid, surprisingly, proved to be an energetic and competent administrator and war leader who continued the building and conquering that had made the empire so powerful under Nebuchadnezzar. But he was personally devoted to Sin, the goddess of the moon. Nabu Naid worked hard to raise the profile of his favored goddess, even going so far as to exalt Sin over Babylon's own god Marduk, which may have created some religious discord within the empire. But that wasn't the big problem. Remember that Babylonian deities were associated with particular cities. Sin was the patron of the city of Haran, which was at that point ruled by the Medes. Capturing Haran became Nabu Naid's driving ambition. Early on in his reign, the Medes were themselves rocked by the sudden revolt of one of their Persian vassals, Cyrus. Cyrus overthrew his masters, captured their capital city, and swiftly consolidated his hold on the realm that had once belonged to the Medes. Sensing an opportunity in this civil war, Nabu Naid declared war, and he launched an attack that did succeed in capturing Haran. As the Persian-Median power struggle played out, Nabu Naid set to work rebuilding the Temple of the Moon Goddess. But this rebel Cyrus is remembered by history as Cyrus the Great, so you can probably guess where the story is going to go next. Once Cyrus finished kicking the Medes around, he decided he was not content with just their small realm. Within ten years, Cyrus was marching against the imperial city, Babylon itself. A Babylonian army met the invaders outside the walls of the city, but they were driven off in disarray. Suddenly, Mesopotamian cities started surrendering to the Persians without a fight. Babylon quickly fell to the Persian vanguard. Nabu Naid tried to sneak back into the city to organize its resistance, but he was discovered and captured. And two weeks later, Cyrus himself entered Babylon. Going back to the beginning of this story, we have seen Babylon fall to outsiders countless times. But the cultural gravity of Babylonian civilization, going all the way back to Sumer itself, always managed to capture the city's captors. The invading Akkadians wrote their language with Sumerian characters. The Amorites captured Babylon and became Babylonians. The Kassites and Chaldeans did the same. The Assyrians were so enamored of Babylonia that they maintained its institutions after their conquest. They even wrote their own version of the Enuma Elish. Every successive dynasty would legitimize itself in the old ways, continue the old traditions, and protect the old gods. But Cyrus and the Achaemenid dynasty that descended from him were not interested. They held the city, they were not held by it. When the local urban elites revolted, as they so often had against the foreign rulers of the past, the Achaemenid king, Xerxes, simply annihilated them. They disappear from the historical record in the second year of his reign. In fact, the historical record we're talking about is largely composed of the archives that were maintained by those elite urban families and the temples they ran, 
And those archives themselves end here with Xerxes. And this was the end of Babylonian independence. The Persians would hold the city until it was taken from them by Alexander the Great. His Seleucid successors would hold it until the arrival of the Parthians. They then built their new capital, Tessaphon, some 30 miles north of Babylon, and the once grand city, now marginalized both politically and economically, declined steadily into obscurity. Next week, we'll talk more about its myths, the art that inspired the Crossbone Vanguard mobile suits, the relationship between the kings and the gods on whose behalf they ruled, and how the Mesopotamian environment works as a metaphor for life in the space colonies. And after all of that, maybe we'll be able to make a few guesses about what it was exactly that Might Sirona admired so much about ancient Babylon. And now Nina's research on Moriguchi Hiroko. You may recall that when we covered the preview ads for F91, some of these ads featured the names of various people involved in the production, people who they obviously thought would be a potential draw for audiences. Tomino, Yaz, Okawara Kunio. But some of these names were unfamiliar to me and warranted a closer look. First up, Moriguchi Hiroko. Currently a member of No Rizon, part of Daiichi Pro Grupu talent agency, Moriguchi Hiroko is a baradoru, or variety idol, a performer who appears on variety programs as a participant, singer, host, or MC, and general talent. Born June 13, 1968, in Fukuoka City, Fukuoka Prefecture, as the youngest of four girls, Moriguchi knew by age four that it was her dream to be a singer. As a preschooler, she appeared on an amateur singing contest on a local TV station. And when she was five years old, she appeared on the child version of NHK's annual New Year's Eve singing competition show, and continued to appear on it almost every year throughout elementary school, usually performing songs by contemporary famous idols. She began voice training and dance lessons, and was exceptional enough that many of her teachers waived their fees which was very helpful since her family was not particularly well off. And it was during elementary school that she had the opportunity to perform with a live band at the famous Nakano Sun Plaza Hall in Tokyo, an experience she has described as formative, saying that when the applause washed over her, she knew for sure that being a singer was what she wanted to do with her life, that on stage performing was where she was meant to be. Her parents divorced when she was eight, and from then on she was raised by her mother, who was strict but very supportive, encouraging the pursuit of her dream, helping her enter contests and auditions, and so on. In junior high school, she continued to take music lessons, sang as an opening act when an idol group came to Fukuoka, and performed as a backup dancer on a TV music program. Other students treated her as a bit of a celebrity and would ask her to sing at school, something she didn't mind at all. Moriguchi's numerous TV performances gave her a lot of self-confidence, but at the same time, she attended well over 100 auditions before she caught a break as an idol singer. She describes these rejections as the first time that she realized, oh, maybe I'm not as exceptional as I thought. And her diaries from that time describe anguish over the rejections. Her break came when she performed on NHK's Kachinuki Kayo Tengoku, 
which means something like Ballad Paradise Tournament, where she was the runner-up. Her performance was noticed by a recording studio executive, and she was invited to audition to sing Zeta Gundam's theme song, what we call From the Aqueous Star with Love. She got the gig and made her debut in 1985 when she was about 16 years old with Star Child of King Records. Remember King Records? From the Aqueous Star with Love was a smash hit, reaching number 16 on the Oricon charts. Oricon being to Japan what Billboard is to the US. She was, of course, happy that the song was a hit, but worried that an anime theme song wasn't the usual or orthodox path for an idol-slash-singer. At the same time, in a kind of whirlwind, she got a record deal, auditioning in May, recording in June, traveling to Tokyo in July for promotion, and the record debuted in August. But the following songs didn't yield any hits. Both her talent agency and her recording company were promoting other stars ahead of her, and she felt keen disappointment that she wasn't number one at either. As part of her commitment to pursuing a singing career, she transferred high schools to attend one with an arts program, the famous Horikoshi High School in Tokyo, known for its many famous alums and lenient attendance requirements for working students. Still, she remained a somewhat obscure performer. Most of her classmates worked frequently and missed a lot of school. Compared to them, she worked very little and had practically perfect attendance, a badge of shame under the circumstances. Sometimes, she'd be the only one in class and would lie about having work or an excuse to leave school early. Despite feeling miserable, Moriguchi says she never wanted to return home to Fukuoka or give up on her dream of being a singer and performer. Just before she graduated, her record company threatened to cut her loose. She pleaded with them not to, and they agreed, but as a result, she wound up doing a lot of work she wasn't particularly interested in, namely variety shows and the like. She acknowledges that these shows were good for her career, giving her name and face recognition that led to singing opportunities. So she became resigned to it, and with time, she even came to find variety show appearances to be fun and worth doing. Then, in 1988, she sang a theme song for Yoroiden Samurai Truba, known as Ronin Warriors in English a series extremely popular with middle- and high school-aged girls at the time. The song, Samurai Hato, or Samurai Heart, was another hit, reaching number 88 on the Oricon charts, and it gained Moriguchi additional fame, popularity, and name recognition. This was followed by still more variety TV and competition shows, including a Fuji TV impersonation competition show, which she won for her impersonation of Kudo Shizuka, another singer-actress idol. She did song collaborations with friends and fellow idols, and released a photo book. Apparently, she has famously nice skin. And she became a popular and established variety show personality. By the time F91 was being promoted, her performance of Zeta Gundam's theme song was likely just as much of a draw as her reputation and popularity as a variety performer, though to markedly different audiences. The theme itself, Eternal Wind, Hohoemi wa Hikaru Kaze no Naka, often shortened to just Eternal Wind, went on to become her biggest hit song, and debuted on the Oricon charts at number 9. Eternal Wind cemented her reputation as a singer rather than just a variety idol, and that same year she appeared on Kohaku Utagasen, NHK's New Year's Eve singing competition show, the regular version of the show she appeared on as a child. 
Many viewers, familiar with her variety show appearances, were surprised to learn that she was a singer. Although it was seven years after her technical debut, she has said that she felt this was when her career as a singer really began. Since then, Moriguchi has worked steadily, mostly on variety and competition shows as a participant and MC, though she did have another song on the Oricon charts in 2012, after forming the group Blooming Girls with Minami no Yuko and Nishimura Tomomi. Their debut song, Knock Knock Knock, made it to number 66. After performing From the Aqueous Star with Love in her teens and Eternal Wind in her 20s, in her 30s, she recorded Mo Hitotsu no Mirai, Starry Spirits, and Sore Demo Ikiru, the opening and ending songs for the game SD Gundam G-Generation Spirits. In her 40s, Uchu no Kanatade, for the Mobile Suit Gundam The Origin, movie number 4, Unme no Senya, and in her 50s, Ubugoe, for the Kukuru's Doan's Island movie. More recently, she has reflected that because anime songs cross generations and borders, these songs have been an eternal treasure to her and have given her singing a kind of immortality. And remember, when NHK ran a bunch of polls for Gundam's 40th anniversary, From the Aqueous Star with Love won Best Gundam Song, and Eternal Wind came in third. Then in 2019, I assume in a nod to the role the series has played in her career, she released the first of three albums of her covering songs from various Gundam series. The albums are called Gundam Song Covers, Gundam Song Covers 2, released in 2020, and Gundam Song Covers 3, released in 2022, and all of them have been huge commercial successes. I really enjoyed learning about her. I have so much respect for an artist who, even if they never reach the superstardom they dream of, finds their niche and finds a way to keep living their dream. And how can I not sympathize with an artist who does that through Gundam? Next time on episode 7.7 .7 of Mitzer and Men, we continue our research and discussion of Gundam F91 and the juice box is the ideal hydration delivery system! Exterminate. Exterminate. Good mecha design is when there's a big machine and a little machine and they're buddies. We stand a red-headed Onesan type. New types, new types, new types! A rain of potatoes. And now the story of a wealthy family that wanted everything, and the one son-in-law who had no choice but to put on the mask. This is only the beginning. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin, the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is His Last Share of the Stars by Dr. Turtle. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at GundamPodcast, or by email to hosts at GundamPodcast.com. And thank you for listening. 
With Gundam's international popularity on the rise, there are now more opportunities to share your wrong Gundam opinions than ever before. So get out there and tell some stranger that F91 isn't too short, it's too long. There's only about 30 minutes of good ideas in there. The rest is just padding and filler. It should have been a half hour TV special. The wrong Gundam opinion this week comes from The Sus in the MSB Discord. Thanks, The Sus. This is episode 7.6, Unfulfilled Expectations, and we are your hosts. It was potential. Was it? Yes. It sounds like you had an expectation that went unfulfilled. If you want to change the name, <laughs> no. that's, that's no, fine. No, 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 I'll, just... I'll change it back. I didn't do that intentionally, I'm we... sorry. Potential. Unfulfilled potential. Potential is what we called it last week. Document being weird. I don't think you have to worry about the fans in my computer. Just... Okay. I just heard I heard you laugh, and so... No, oh, no. I was laughing at the fans coming on. That's nice. It's good, right? Yeah. He rebuilt temples. He made... He rebuilt temples. Aqueducts. He rebuilt temples. What's the thing? Irrigation. And he got to enjoy the new role, and he got to enjoy the new rule for, and he got to enjoy the new, and he got to enjoy his new rule, role, rule, role. <laughs> <laughs>